Okay, so we're cutting straight to the chase here. I have Dr. Steve Ditchkoff with me. Uh, if you don't know him, then you have never read Deer and Deer Hunting because he's been in our magazine for going on 30 years, not trying to make you feel old, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's, it's great to be here. I appreciate it. And so I'm not going to get into all the background. We know the background. Um, uh, Steve basically manages the the Deer Lab at Auburn University. I like saying that because it's like, you know, these college football players say the Ohio University. No, it's the Deer Lab at Auburn University. Steve, tell the listeners, uh, Deer Talk listeners and viewers, a little bit about the Deer Lab before we get into this. Well, uh, the Deer Lab is both a physical entity and it's a program. Um, you know, I've been here at Auburn for 23 years, and um, and I and, and and all the wonderful people that I work with worked really hard to establish a program that we're proud of. Um, we've had, you know, maybe 30 graduate students graduate in the last number of years, a lot of undergraduates, a lot of other faculty that have been working on deer research questions that are important to deer and deer hunting readers and viewers. Um, so we've had this program gone going, and my predecessor, Dr. Keith Causey, did a lot of work with whitetail deer. And so, you know, the Deer Lab is a program, and it's the people that are a part of it, but, you know, there's a lot of people refer to our deer research facility as the Deer Lab. We have a 430-acre deer research facility um, that's located about 20 miles north of campus. Um, and inside that facility, we have in the neighborhood of, you know, at any time, about 100 adult deer. Um, that we're taking a look at things relating to reproductive success, trying to understand which males do the breeding. Um, but it's also a unique facility to examine techniques and tools for determining density. And so we're doing a lot of lot of lot of mate selection and reproductive success type questions, but also taking a look at things how to determine density. For example, we're doing a lot of drone work right now. We've got a graduate student using thermal cameras on drones that's trying to refine that technique for coming up with um, precise deer estimates. It's fascinating stuff. And if you guys want more, just go to deerandeerhunting.com. We've republished some of these articles. We have a partnership with Auburn on this. And the deer density work, the mate selection work, um, just read this stuff and you can. And I know that uh, Steve's not going to want me to hear this, but you can apply it to your own situations, at least to better understand how deer behave and deer, how deer um, interact on the landscape. So, Steve, I'm going to cut to the chase. I have, um, these were mostly listener supplied, but I cherry-picked them based off of stuff that we've done together. So um, I'm going to put this into three sections. First one, um, the question is, where do all the deer go? And that's a broad-based question. But I want to break it down because we're coming into spring, and... I know you've done a lot of work on dispersal, how deer um, basically take up shop across the, the landscape, but also in fall. So let's break that into two pieces. Where do all the deer go in spring uh, from last year? A doe's got two fawns, a yearling buck is now dispersing, and then um, we'll, we'll, I'm going to flip the question to fall. So let's start with spring. Where do all the deer go coming out of winter into spring, and how do they disperse across habitat? Well, uh, obviously, it depends on how you define spring and winter. You know, here in Alabama, we're dealing a little bit different than you up, are up in Wisconsin. Um, you know, if we're talking, you know, right now and we're looking at, you know, northern Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Maine, that sort of thing, you've got deer coming out of their wintering habitat, you know, normally kind of going through March. They're locked into the, some of those areas in those northern regions, and there's going to be relatively short migrations back to their summer and fall home ranges. 
Um, so that's kind of a little bit of a unique scenario. When you, when you get south of about the 45th parallel, um, you, you, you lose that migration and you've got deer that are more stationary in the landscape. Um, I think the biggest thing is, you know, here, here in Alabama, you know, Louisiana, South Carolina, we're, we're, we're we just started going through spring green up a couple of weeks ago. And so we're kind of seeing what you're going to be seeing up in Wisconsin here, probably about six weeks, five weeks, you know, everything's kind of popping out there in the woods, a lot of, a lot of green stuff. Um, so, I mean, the deer really aren't going anywhere so much as they're really kind of changing their feeding patterns. Um, you know, we do a lot of our captures at our deer research facilities starting in late September and ending about right now. Uh, we have supplemental feed provided year round and these deer, you know, utilize its supplemental feed year round. But right now, there's so much good stuff out there for them that it's just hard to get them to go to supplemental feed. And I think what you're going to see, they're using a lot of supplemental feed if it's available up in your part of the country. Um, but and you're going to but you're going to see the same sort of pattern, you know, in late April coming into May, where deer really go onto natural browse for the next couple months. And um, so it's, it's, it's more of a kind of a pattern thing in terms of what their behavior is. So we know that as far as, uh, you know, that's something Charlie always said, you, he who has the food has the deer. And that is pretty much uh, the case if you have the habitat, if you have the habitat, the good habitat, and you're managing it, and, and you're, you've got the native uh, species and forbs and stuff coming back, you're going to have the deer. But what happens like this time of year, I know it's different. Um, I skew my thoughts towards the Midwest and the North, because that's where we live. And that's, let's face it, that's where uh, the preponderance of the deer hunters are. But you have Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, uh, the, the Carolinas, you, you, you Oklahoma, you, you have these Southern states. Do those deer in, are there seasonal, we call them migrations, but they're seasonal movements. Are they that distinct? Um, when you're looking at uh, a southern deer versus, uh, say, a quote-unquote northern deer? Well, spatially, I think what we're seeing kind of coming out of winter and going into spring and summer is we see a, we see a condensing of their home range. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, I describe this to our students is there's, there's multiple things that affect home range for all mammals, and one of those is season. And when we're looking at coming out of winter, going through spring and into summer, is we're taking a look at a massive improvement in resource availability, specifically food. And if you don't need to wander as far to find it, you're not going to wander as far. And so you're going to see these animals, you're going to see these individual deer, say, go from 600 or 800 acres that they may be covering during winter coming out of the breeding season and condensing that down to 300 or for short periods, sometimes far less than that. Yep. Um, you know, with some of our work that we did, you, you could drive to the same intersection every evening and see that deer within 100 yards of where it was, you know, for two weeks, three weeks. Um, you could and you could go with that, you know, pretty much any time with a radio collar and locate it right there. You know, if they don't need to move, they're not going to move very far. Um, but you'll probably see them kind of shift the, their, their spatial use of these of the landscape, depending upon what resources are available. You know, if, if something's heading out. You know, for example, we used to see that in Oklahoma with when the sumac was heading out and we, we'd, we'd find them eating those sumac heads, um, when, when, you know, but prior to that being available, they may be, a, you know, a quarter mile away utilizing some other resource. So you're going to see them really condense and, and, and try and focus on those resources that are available. 
What about, uh, let's talk about female dispersal. Is it, uh, the, the way John Ozoga described it to me uh, uh, back in the day was when you had these overlapping home ranges of maternally linked females, you would have, um, let's just say, for all intents and purposes, let's just say a couple square miles. And within that couple square miles, you're going to have overlapping rings of maternally related females. But then when you get to spring, the way he described it to me is you have high rent and low rent. Um, you have high rent, which means the um, the physically superior uh, matriarchs are going to take the best habitat. And they're going to basically push those other females to the lower rent areas. And I always, the way I programmed my rock farmer, translation redneck brain, into this was I could see that in fall because I could set my watch on killing a yearling doe in the crappiest fallow field that I had access to because she was living there all fall because that's what she was pushed out to. Is that the case? Um, yes or no. And is it the case all across the country how females live on the habitat? You know, I, I think it's overall, I think it's a really good question. I think there's still a lot of information that we need to learn on that. Um, you know, what, what what John described is, you know, what, what some people have termed the rose petal hypothesis, yep. where you have these 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 juvenile female or, or younger female with partially overlapping home ranges. Um, the degree to which they overlap or they don't overlap probably varies considerably. Um, they're not deer, not territorial. So they're not defending space. Um, they're able to utilize that space along with, you know, an inferior female along with a, a more dominant female. They're able to utilize that same space and, and they will. But it's the, the reality is there hasn't been a lot of money put into research to understanding kind of those spatial dynamics of females. You know, that question that, you know, the information that you got from John, you know, that they did back there, you know, a lot of the work they did back in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s there in Michigan was really, really cutting edge. And unfortunately, we have really haven't had agencies follow up with that to try and understand the specific details. But I think a lot of it's there. I mean, more dominant females gain access to better resources. Whether or not to the degree to which, which there's exclusion going on, you know, is is kind of poorly understood, however. It's, it's a great point that you make because I agree with you. That was the Cousineau Wildlife Research uh, Center that John worked at and uh, Lou Verm, uh, his, I guess, uh, his mentor cohort uh, worked there too. I wish we still had those days where you had states pouring that kind it wasn't tons of money but it was time it was resources to understand these things better because today it seems uh, auburn excluded it's it just seems like a lot of the research that we see is is a little bit more case in point on things that aren't educating us on exactly how this creature exists on the planet there's there's no question there's 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 a lot it's the most it's the most well studied animal in north america without a doubt um but there's still a lot of basic stuff we don't know um and so you know at the end of the day you know what what's driving research questions is is hunting um and the the the, the specific questions that state agencies have is paying for the mo majority of this research and Michigan was ahead of the game back then in the 70s and 80s. They were answer, they were addressing questions that 
I and, and, and my peers across the country, we're still relying on what they did and look at what they did 40 and 50 years ago and just say, well, they were they were really cutting edge back then. Same thing. And we're with, just now following up on it. With fetal weights, but I'm not going to get into that because that's that stuff is fascinating. Okay, so staying on this topic for two more minutes, um, when I say where do all the deer go, uh, it, we do know through some data and that would be National Highway Institute data on car deer crashes across the country. They seem to be higher in spring, and they seem to be higher during the rut. Why is that? I think you have more movement. Um, I think the biggest thing is, obviously, during the rut, you, 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 that, is the, that is the time of the year when you've got the greatest movement rates. Um, they're moving more at night. They're moving, well, they're moving more all 24 hours. They're just covering more ground. And as a result, they're crossing more roads, but they're also crossing more roads at a high rate without just kind of walking. They're running across roads. If you take a look in spring, we don't necessarily, we don't, here in the South, we don't see this uptick in spring so much in terms of deer vehicle collisions, because I don't think we have deer that are changing real estate so much. We don't have that harsh winter that's kind of pushing them into new areas. And as a result, they're moving back into their summer, fall habitats. And so I think what, you, what, what we're seeing in more of the colder regions, when you, you know, Oklahoma falls into this a little bit, um, but obviously, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, New York, um, you have deer that are shifting real estate from more of a little bit of a winter range to a summer range. And they're dealing with, land, with roads that they are a little less familiar with. I think that's one of the big things is they're familiar with the traffic patterns. Familiar with the traffic patterns, one thing I was hoping you'd go towards was, does does uh, female and male dispersal have anything to do with it in spring, in your opinion? Yes, you have, you've got particularly male, there's not as much going on with female, but particularly with juvenile males between a year and a year and a half of age, you're seeing them begin to go and explore new areas. Um, you know, during a dispersal period, you you'll have... You know, you'll have these young males that they may go check out a new area three, five, seven times. And as a result, they may be going three to 10 kilometers back and forth between these areas. And they're crossing a lot of roads. And, you know, it's kind of a cartoonish way to put it. But, you know, they're playing Frogger. Yep. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're having to make it across a lot of roads that they wouldn't normally be crossing. And in unfamiliar territory. Perfect. Okay. Number two. I believe is number two. Yes. Um, I want you to give me a broad-based or give the listeners and viewers a broad-based view on how do deer respond to hunting pressure. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying you guys have done some specific research on this topic. And um, one of the points that I remember is uh, one, and I can't remember whose study it was, but it was in Mississippi that said if, if it was just one hunter per 75 acres, that had a significant effect on uh, buck movement during hunting season. Um, but let's go back and just I'll pose the question to you. If you're going to start, let's just pretend it's, you know, I know some states are different. I know Florida has states or seasons that open in August. But let's just go from September 1st to the end of January. How do deer respond to pressure, both bucks and does? Um. I think the I think the first thing you know to, to to mention is, and I think all deer hunters need to remember this, and there'll be better deer hunters for it, is just to remember what deer do for a living. 
is they stay alive. Plain and simple, that's what they do. They do it 24-7, 365 days a year. And the majority of us, we're weekend warriors. You know, we, we, we go spend a couple hours in the woods. Those of us that are really serious are out there shed hunting in, you know, in the spring. We're, 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 we're planting food plots. We're scouting our hunting spots. We're putting out cameras. Um, but we still only spend a fraction of the time in the woods that deer do. And our senses are just, we're numb compared to their ability to detect what's going on. And so I think that's, that's the first most important thing. And so if, if, if we accept that, that they're really good at detecting pressure, whether that be predation from coyotes or pressure and predation from humans, then if, if we understand that they're really good at that, then we have to accept the fact that they're, they're, they're exceptional at detecting when we are there and probably detecting our patterns. And we have a lot of patterns that we can easily predict. Um, individually, you have patterns as a deer hunter. I have patterns as a deer hunter, things that we just do. Um, but we also have patterns as humans that, that tend to be very predictable. And so you and I may be doing some things individually that are kind of deer are queuing in on. But as a whole, all of us as hunters are also contributing to that. We have a lot of things that we, we do the same. For one thing is we, we, we tend to hunt on weekends. Um, we tend to go into the woods 30 minutes, 45 minutes before daylight, an hour before daylight. We tend to leave at the same time. Um, you know, you, we've all heard the stories about, boy, those deer move around noon. Well, we all walk out of the woods at 9, 10 o'clock. You know, either our bladder is telling us or our stomach is or, you know, or we're, we're just cold, bored, whatever the situation. But then we're going back in around the same time and then we're walking out at dark. Uh, we have we have all of these things that we're doing that are that are very patterned. Um, and so we've done a couple of studies that have kind of taken a look at what is deer response to this pressure, to this general pressure. We've looked at it generally with some research that we did here in Alabama, and we looked at it more on a site-by-site -site basis in some work we did in South Carolina. Um, the work we did here in Alabama um, was was work that uh, Kevin Wiskirkin was a former graduate student of mine. He's a deer biologist in the state of Missouri now. And he had radio collared deer out there. And so we examined movement patterns by day of the week. Um, I, re I referenced weekend warriors. Uh, the majority of us, unfortunately, don't have a lot of opportunity to go out during the week, you know. And, but, you know, Friday comes, we've got our plans. We go get out Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but normally Monday through Thursday, we're not spending much time. And what we were finding was um, by the end of the weekend, daytime movement patterns, you know, by Sunday were very low and they were still dropping on Monday. And I think they, they were kind of at their lowest on daytime movement patterns, daylight movement patterns on Monday and Tuesday. And then they would rise, start to rise Tuesday, Wednesday, they would kind of peak back up Wednesday, Thursday. And then they would slowly start to decline on Friday as all of us go to the woods, you know, here. And we did this work in Alabama here in Alabama. We, you know, we have a 10 week gun season. So it's a little bit different than the compressed seasons that we'll find in Michigan, Wisconsin, that sort of thing. And so these deer by the time December or, or December, January, part of our hunting season comes, they've been exposed to six weeks of bow season, you know, six, seven, eight weeks of gun season. And we've trained them pretty well. And, what do we all do? We all fire up the four-wheeler. We all roll into these properties. The gate squeaks. Uh, we leave scent on the ground. 
and all of these deer say, "Yep, it's Friday again." Um, and you'll see, and you'll see those daytime patterns decrease. Um, they move less. They move shorter distances. They move at a slower rate. All of those things. And so by Sunday, it's a tough hunt because um, because we've trained them for three, four, five, six, seven weeks. And some of these deer, like the ones behind you that you have mounted, we've trained them for five, six, seven years. That they've learned, they've learned that okay, I'm not moving. And I, I did read the you, you actually wrote articles for us on this. As the season progresses, that reaction time is much quicker, correct? Like uh, on a deer, like we get first week into the season, it might adjust things. But now you got two, three, four, five, six weeks of this. The deer said, yep, it's Friday or whatever. It's almost that simple. And the it's, yeah. it's fact is how it's, sh- it's shutting the activity down. There's no question. You know, the, the more pressure, you know, the, the greater the response is going to be. And, um, you know, it's I was just shocked. And I've, and I've spoken to some people. Um, that are that are pretty good deer biologists that have, you know, seen us presentations on this and read our results, and they said they've started to hunt Thursday and they've seen their hunter su- their success go up. That's what I used to do. I would take off in the middle of the week. I would use my vacation days one or two at a time. With more than seventy years of experience in the animal health and nutrition industries, Analogics Outdoors brings its unique expertise to the science of deer feed and attractants. For more information, visit Analogics. How, how is it affecting, uh, in the study specifically, how is it affect, is it affecting how deer use landscape or is it just ha- affecting how they're, they're moving about? During we, we really weren't, we weren't able to take a look at how they were using the landscape. Um, you know, we wanted to, in a perfect world, we would be able to, the, the, our issue is there's just so, so much natural variability out there from deer to deer and from day to day. And, you know, one Wednesday it's raining and storming. The next Wednesday it's bluebird. Uh, that we just we just don't didn't have enough data to really examine how they were utilizing. If I had to speculate, they're using they're using tighter cover a little bit more. Um, if they are moving, they're moving in cover a little bit more during those periods when when there is pressure. Um, you know, like I said, we're seeing a decrease in movement, but they're not just laying there. They're not just laying in the thicket the whole time. They have to move. They're just moving under cover. Um, but, you know, as I, as I indicated earlier, that's kind of the temporal pattern that we found in South Carolina. We took a look, took a look at it on a deer by deer basis. And what happens when one person goes to the woods? Um, you know, if, if you, if you're hunting your piece of property, and even if you're going in there on Wednesdays and Thursdays, what's happening to that deer after you go and hunt? And so we had the ability on this piece of property to document a this is a 15,000 acre piece of property that the, all the hunters are put out at their stands and they're hunting out of set stands. They're not wandering through the woods. They're only walking about a hundred yards to their stands when they get dropped off. So there's not creating a lot of disturbance. Um, and we went in and examined what was the probability of these deer coming to, of our radio collar deer coming to food plots in the days following when that food plot was hunted. It didn't, we didn't look at whether a shot was fired or anything like that, but we had over, you know, we probably have 2,000, 3,000 individual hunting days or evening or a morning or something like that. And what we found is there was a substantial decrease in the probability of, of deer stepping onto these food plots in the two, in the one, two, three, five days following when a, when a spot was hunted. Um, so if I went out and I hunted, hunted a, a stand on Saturday, I don't want to go back in there on Sunday. 
it's not a good spot. I don't want to go in there on Monday, on Tuesday and Wednesday. And it's just the fact that it's we're creating disturbance that we're not aware of. We may have had deer step out on the food plot, but what we don't know is how many deer walked downwind of us that detected, wow, there's people here. How many people, how many deer walked across our scent trail in the hours after we left the stand? Where they say, there's people using this area. I'm hesitant to go out there during the day. And so, you know, when I was a young hunter, um, I'd hunt that same tree stand for days on end. Friday, Saturday, Sunday for six weeks, five weeks, four weeks. And, you know, we're, 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 and what do we do as hunters is, is we, we're, we're, we're becoming very lazy in general as a, the hunting public. We plant food plots and, and that, I mean, that requires work, but when we plant that food plot, we, we generally, we're, we're building these shooting towers. We've got a nice chair, like what I'm in a little bit worn down, but it's comfortable. It's warm. It's out of the weather. I can close the little windows. If it's raining, it's a great spot for me to take my son or daughter, you know, cause they're enclosed. They can play their little video game. If, if, if I'm running a little bit late, what's an easy spot for me to slip into in the dark um, or just an hour before we hunt these spots over and over and over again is, is really what I'm saying. And, and we're telling the deer what we're doing. Um, they, they, they know the patterns. We see similar data with, 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 with coyotes and pressure on deer. Um, there's some neat data has come out of Georgia where they, if they fence coyotes with a low fence out of a hundred acres, all the does go in there to have their fawns. You know, they, they're, 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 they're building a map of where there's predation risk and we're contributing to data to that map. It's fascinating stuff when you think about it. And we actually have video. I was la- I'm almost going to laugh when you said about when the deer are paying attention when you're not there. And we actually have video from last year of a uh, bank blind I got out of, was out of the blind for an hour. Here comes a big mature doe with two fawns standing there looking at that blind blowing at it. I'm like, I haven't been there in an hour, but we're watching her. And what the interesting point that you also make is it's not just human pressure. It's... Uh, like you said about coyote pressure and black bears and other things, deer are going to learn how to survive. And um, from our standpoint as a hunter, that law of diminishing returns kicks in really fast, no matter how careful you try to be if you are hunting the same spot. So trying to be thinking about around that area and how can you hunt that area without hunting actually over the food plot? I think think that's a really good point. I think there's a couple things to take home. You know, if I go in there and hunt a spot in the morning, I'm not opposed to hunting it in the evening because it's probably hasn't had much activity for deer to detect my presence between then. But I don't want to hunt it tomorrow. I don't want to hunt it the next day. Number two, we all love to deer hunt for a lot of different reasons. Number one is we like to harvest a big deer. We enjoy the experience out there. Maybe it's venison. There's all these different reasons for hunting, but it's because we enjoy being out there. It, it, it's it's a it's it's relaxation. It's boy, you know, it's therapy. You like watch the sunrise, the wood comes, woods come alive, whatever it is. But we're 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 so set on oh my gosh, I'm you know I need to go hunting. I need to go hunting. If it's not good, go don't go, don't go, don't go ruin that spot. You know, go to those good spots. You know, and just and hunting sparingly. I think you can probably cut your deer hunting by. 
and probably increase your probability of harvesting a good deer. Um, just by being wise on when you go hunt spots, make sure the wind's right. You know, try and hunt when the condition's best. Um, it's, I think we can do a lot of things to reduce our, reduce the data we contribute to the deer. You know, we're, we're educating them all the time. Try and reduce that education, and I think we'll all be better deer hunters for it. Be smarter, be more judicious, and have options. That That's right there in a nutshell. I think some some good advice. Okay, number... I think be, be mobile. Be, be mobile. very mobile. And, you, and that's another thing. Back in the day, um, let me just finish off. Back in the day, we, some guys would say, oh, you, you know, you have, whatever, a small property. You know how it is. You grew up in Michigan, right? Yep. You have 10 acres. You have 20 acres. You have 30 acres. You have 40 acres. Well, you can't put that many stands out there. I said, yes, you can, because I could put 12 stands on 40 acres and really keep the pressure off the deer just based off of what you said. Um, I'm only going to hunt the stand unless the wind is perfect. And it doesn't even have to be, I could get in there and the conditions are perfect. But, you know, you keep, you see the people that, and bless their hearts, they love to hunt, so do I. But you run out to that stand morning and night and morning and night, especially you see gun hunters do this a lot. Well, that's my stand. If you don't have those options, there's nothing else you can do but um, basically blow deer out of there. And then by Wednesday of gun season, you're not seeing anything. And you, But you're seeing deer, but you're seeing fawns and yearlings. Yes. You're not seeing the ones that, that you want to harvest, the ones that you've educated over the years. And when I say be mobile, you know, you can have 10, 12 ladder stands on that piece of property. Me, I rarely hunt out of a stand. Uh, most of the time now I'm hunting, you know, I'm not bow hunting anymore, really, not too much. But it's like, boy, I know, I know that ridge over there is going to be good. I'm going to go scratch out a spot against a tree in the morning. I'm familiar with my property. I can get in there in the dark. And I haven't had to go in there and even create any disturbance That's with putting a stand up. Yep. Um, and so I do a lot of that and I'm hunting trails. I'm hunting one or two or three deer instead of seeing those eight deer on a food plot. Very good. Very good. Okay. Third topic. This is the final topic, I believe. Yes. Third topic. Um, surprising habits of bucks. This one I really like. This was an article. Uh, Kevin might have done this with you, I believe. No. This was, uh, you tell me about it. Five, well, five surprising habits of bucks is what the name of the article was. Yeah, when I, you know, I did my PhD at Oklahoma State University, and I had the great fortune of um, my research took place on the McAllister Army Ammunition Plant in southeast Oklahoma. And I would argue that this is the best population, best free-ranging population of white-tailed deer in the country that the public can hunt. Um, it's a lottery system, and back in the day, it was one in seven chances of being drawn, and it's traditional archery only. But it has tremendous deer out there, and a lot of them. And, you know, some of the things that we looked at was we, we put we put radio collars on 80 bucks over three years. This was in 95, 96, and 97. And so we followed these deer around for some of them up to three, four years and got to kind of see how did they move. And so that article that you're referencing was kind of a description of some of the bizarre patterns or non-normal patterns that we saw. You know, today it's very common for, you know, every every university does research with white-tailed deer has data on movement patterns and these GPS scholars that collect locations every 15 minutes. Well, back in the 80s and the 90s, we were using VHF collars that we had to physically go out there with an antenna and locate them. And it was a lot of work. And so 
you know, there wasn't a lot of information that was really presented to the public back in that time in terms of what deer actually do. But if any, you know, my assumption had always been, and I'm assuming most people are, is a deer is going to home range of 600 acres. You're going to find them in those 600 acres, a thousand acres all the time, and they're going to stick there. And we found that with some of our deer. They were very predictable from year to year. They were always in that same section of land. But there were a good number of deer that had very different movement patterns. Um, you know, we had the biggest deer that we radio collared there. We captured as a six and a half year old. He was 177 Boone and Crockett plus. Um, he was a tremendous deer. And we were able to follow him when he was seven, eight, nine years old. And that deer stayed during that time in the same 1,800 acres during that entire time. But he spent November, the peak of their breeding season, in a different 600 acres each year. Um, you know, there's you know, the article that you're referencing, you know, it's available online and you can kind of see some of the points. There'd be a little bit of movement, but his, the epicenter of where, these, where this buck was was a half mile to a mile distant between years. And what that means to me is the vast majority of us don't have access to land that's a mile across. We're hunting 100 acres, 10 acres, 20 acres. We're taking advantage of what we can get. What that means is that deer may have been on my 100 acre, using my 100 acre property last year, but he may be a half mile away this year. And it's that that's one example of a, of, of a movement pattern. We had two deer that we actually, I remember we trapped them together. It was early January. Um, you know, these were 125 to 145 inch deer. They were, they were four and five years old when we trapped them. One of those deer in March would make a five mile jaunt over to another part of the base and he would spend the spring and summer five miles away. And then he would come back in October and he would spend October, November, December, January, February in his, his breeding season home range. And we watched him do this three years. He would make that five mile jaunt then he would be over there, spend the summer, and then he would come back. What does that mean? If I'm going out and doing an August survey to figure out what deer are utilizing my property, I never would have gotten this guy on camera. The other deer that we caught at the same time as him, when we dropped that net on top of him, this was another deer, he would move a mile and a half to two miles. He would go spend his summer. This was a deer I referenced earlier that I could drive to this one intersection and I could see him out there in the sumac, eating the sumac heads. He would move a mile and a half back to that same breeding home range as this other buck. But in the summer, he would move that mile and a half to the north or south, and um, and he would be in a totally different area. Um, we had another deer that we trapped. He was a beautiful 10-point as a four-and-a-half-year-old. Um, we radio collared him. As a five-and-a-half-year-old, he was a beautiful 10-point. As a six-and-a-half-year-old, he was a massive eight-point. At six-and-a-half years old, he up and relocated two and a half miles, never came back. Hmm. This deer was incredibly predictable where he was all the time, and we couldn't find him. And we were shocked. And we're like, well, what happened? And then we started doing a search. Took us a couple hours. We found him two and a half, three miles away, um, and he never relocated. 
um, why this happened. And I can't remember the time of the year that that took place. It was not during the breeding season. I know that. Um, these deer just, they, they have a lot of different patterns. Um, and, and I guess that, you know, the take home message to me is you may think, you know, what's on your property and you, and you, you're at least partially right, but you may not know what's on your property. Number one, they're, they're, they're utilizing very, you know, they may have seasonal home ranges that are very different. And so you may not be getting them on camera. And so they're making these strange movements. Number two, you know, these extra home range movements. These deer leave their home range a lot, particularly during the breeding season. Um, it's not uncommon for these deer to go, you know, anywhere from one miles to two, three, four, even five miles in a night outside of their home range. Um, and it could be for a night or it may be for several days before they come back. Um, there's, there's just a lot of strange patterns and things we're learning now that we have, we're getting so many radio collars on deer with GPS technology that we can get hypersensitive locations in a lot of them. There's a lot of strange movement patterns. A lot of strange movement patterns. You know, I'm going to ask you a question, but you actually, you don't remember this. You were one of the people that broadened my view on this years ago. You have to look at a bird's eye view of, of your property. Um, and what's around you, because you're, we're living in such a small little microcosmic area where we hunt. But so should I not even waste my time trying to take a census of the bucks? This is a con, this is a hot topic among among deer hunters. I need to census the bucks on my property before hunting season. Is it does that even pay to try to do that? I I, I think. I don't think it's a waste of time. No, um, I, I think it's for a lot of reasons. Number one is the more information you have, the better you are. Um, you may. Number one, you have more information, you're more confident, you're more educated. And then back to confidence. I think that's a big deal, too. If you've got confidence that you think you know what these deer are doing, that's going to make you a better hunter. The day that you're like, yeah, there's nothing out there is the day that you don't perform any scent control. You don't worry about the noise you make. You're 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 not as, as as studious out there. You've got your phone up and you're 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 texting, checking email. You're not as good a hunter when you're not confident. So anything that you can do, I feel that improves your confidence makes you a better hunter. Just because you you put on your game face, you're out there doing the stuff that has made you successful before. But with that being said, I think it's really important to understand. You know, I've learned it because I do so much collecting of data and examining data and to realize how wrong we are frequently is to understand that whatever glimpse we have of this deer herd is an imperfect view. And if we if we can if we can accept that, that it's a glimpse, it, 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 it's, it's an imperfect view, it's an imperfect glimpse of what's actually going on out there, then that at least opens us to the possibility that not that I'm wrong. But there may be things happening that I don't know, that it may be that deer that's coming onto the property that I need to be aware of. There's a lot more opportunity there than just the little bit that I'm aware of. You know, we hear these stories all the time. I didn't see that buck all year long. Yeah. Well, that buck may have been five miles away. Yeah. And then, know? or somebody, a neighbor got it, you know, like you said, five miles away. A neighbor got a picture of it and then I killed it. And, that, and that's, that's very common, uh, especially during the rut. And those bucks it, are starting to move a little bit more. It, it, it is very common. And, and, and so, you know, we talked before about hunting the same stand twice in a row. 
Well, boy, I only have, you only have five days to hunt in a season. You know, if I've got a job Monday through Friday, gun season's short. You know, I, I'm not familiar with the Wisconsin rules, but gun season was 16 days in Michigan. It's That's not a lot yeah. of time to get out Very there. Short, yeah. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I've got this spot. The wind's right for it. Well, I don't know what buck's going to come by. You know, that buck that I'm looking for may not have been through yesterday, so he may not know. My chances are a little bit less, but they're not necessarily less for that buck that was on the neighbor's property yesterday. And we don't know what the neighbors were doing and the neighbor's neighbors and the neighbors as far as the pressure. So that that is something that um, uh, you have to have a short memory on when you're especially a gun hunter. Control what you can control. You know, I can control me. I can learn from other hunters. You know, I love hearing about these these hunting clubs where which you have to write down and put what stand you're going to. If I'm a member of that hunting club, I'm writing all this stuff down. Because what they're doing is they're building a map of hunting pressure, and I'm hunting the gaps. You know, that, that's the best place in the world to be. You've got just as many deer on that property as you do the next one. The problem is you've just created funnels for those deer to move between hunters. Well, I'm hunting those spots where people don't hunt. At times um, when they're not going to be there. Yeah. So I, can, I control what I can control, which is me, which is when I go, where I go, and whether or not I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going through my normal you know, pregame routine of scent control and my approach to a stand, that sort of thing. That's about all I can control. I can control when I shoot and hopefully I can control my nerves enough that my shot placement. But the rest, there's a lot of stuff out of our control. Um, Learn from it. Just be aware there's not a lot you can do about it. This didn't go where I thought it was going to go. It actually went in a better direction and I appreciate that. Okay, we're going to end with a topic. I I ask you this, I think, every time we talk. Um, Steve, tell me uh, your view without being too politically correct about it. Chronic wasting disease, what does it mean for us as a country? What does it mean for our deer herds? Um, where are we sitting now? I know we don't know a lot about it. Are we going about it the right ways, and is there any kind of hope here? Um, I, you know, I think your first question, what does it mean for us? I think it's still unknown. Um, I, I, I we're, 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 there's more and more effort. There's greater technology available for us to understand what's going on with this. Um, I, I think probably, you know, the best example that what we're looking at here in, in the Eastern U S is we're, we're really watching Wisconsin and Illinois because it's our longest running study side by side, you know, and, and there's things that were done right. And there's things that were done wrong, you know, looking hindsight's 2020, you know, no different than the pandemic. There's things we did right. There's things we did wrong as a country. Um, So where it's going, I don't know. The issues that I see is we we are seeing, we're beginning to see evidence and examining of a decline in quality. We're starting to see that. Um, You know, I'm not going to point anywhere particularly, but when you have a disease that is 100% fatal, and, and it's out there. It's a real disease. Anybody that's saying it's not is is sticking their head in the sand. You know, where it came from, you know, there's a lot of theories out there on this, whether it's natural, human produced, jumped species, whatever it is. It's here. It's a real thing. And, it, and, it's, and it's not a good thing. Um, we're seeing declines in quality. Any disease that is 100% fatal, number one, and takes a number of years. This is not like in, like a 
COVID type thing that's going to cycle up and down that you can gain immunity to it or anything like that. We're seeing changes in a very slow change in our deer herds. Um, it's going to impact quality. Define it's, define it's, qual- define how is it affecting quality? Quality in terms of age structure. You're going to have a progressively younger population of deer, and as a result, you're not. You're, it, there's lower probability if you pass these bucks up of them getting to five, six, seven maximum antler size age. So. Not all of them. You're going to have some that are going to make it, but there's going to be a greater quality. There are some counties I've seen that have 55 and 60% prevalence rates in their mature bucks, prevalence of chronic wasting disease. That's not a good thing. How you control that, we're still trying to figure it out. There's still a lot we're learning from a, from a management perspective. Um, I think the biggest thing is we have a natural tendency as, as deer hunters to kind of be at odds with our with our state agencies. Um, they're making the best decisions that they can with the best data they have available. We don't agree with all of them. As, 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 as a sportsman, there's times I look and I'm like, boy, that's not how I would do it. That's not to say that they aren't making the right decision. It's also not to say that I understand why they're making that decision. Um, and so... I think we, we need to back up as, as, as deer hunters and a deer hunting society and respect the fact that these agencies are trying to do it right. And they probably have a lot more information than I do. As, as, as a, They have more information than, than, than the deer hunters normally do. <coughs> They're trying to make the right decision. And it's not based upon money. They are trying to manage the herd right. And they're, they're, they're taking short-term approaches for management, but they're also taking a look at 10, 20 years down the road. They're trying to figure this out the right way. And so if we can contribute to be a part of the solution with regards to helping them with surveillance, if they're asking us to drop off deer heads for testing, there's a reason. If they're asking us to fill out surveys, there's a reason. Um, We need to try and work together in this. There's still a lot of unknown. We know that there's a lot we're learning. We know that there's some some strains of, of deer that are a little less susceptible to chronic wasting disease. We're learning some of that. You know, are we one month, one year, a decade, 25 years away from a vaccine? You know, I, I don't know. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot that's going to come out in the next 10 years because it's not just Wisconsin that has it like 2001. Well, everybody Alabama has, yeah. in 2001 was saying... Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah. You know, back then we're saying, you know, sorry for you guys yep. up there, but we don't have it. Well, now, you know, Mississippi has it, Tennessee, Alabama, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. The only success story out there is New York. They detected a deer or two. They've never detected another one since. Um, is it apocalypse now, though? In these areas where you've got 40 and 50% infection rates, is it like, okay, the, the Sistine Chapel's on fire Everybody stop what you're doing and grab grab a water hose. Are we to that point in some of these areas? No, I, I don't think we are. I don't think we are. Um, things are going to change. This is not the first time that a disease like this has rolled through wildlife populations. This has been going on for a long time. We're just more aware of it now. We have Twitter and we have deer and deer hunting. and We have all these things, these, these groups, places to go get information. And so we're just more aware. It's like we've got climate change. We know that. 
But yeah, we've got bad storms just rolled through here in Auburn about the time that you we started this. I, I got to as soon as we leave here, I got to go to my dear research facility and deal with damage from a hailstorm. You know, we had baseball size hail yesterday. Um, it's not this massive increase in, in severe weather. We just advertise it better. So CWD is kind of like that to me. It's a really serious thing that I think we need to be addressing head on. The deer are going to survive this. We may have some changes in season lengths. We may have some differences in rules. You can't transport the carcass. You can't tra can't do this. It's an inconvenience and it's a pain in the butt. I'm I'm impacted just like every other deer hunter. I don't like that. But it's but it's a fact. The state agency's doing what they think is best for the state as a whole. And they're trying to make good decisions. Let's work with them. Let's work together in this. And 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we may still be in a similar spot, but we're going to be way more educated on it. And yeah, I don't think it's apocalypse now. Um, I, you know, it was like the pandemic, you know, first couple of weeks of the pandemic, you know, you walk, you're seeing somebody walk down the sidewalk and it's like, you know, is that the person that's going to get me? You know, we realized, and it was, it was horrible. It was, it, it, it was, it was devastating for a lot of families. Don't get me wrong, but we're, we're still here. We're still rolling forward. Um, we're a lot of recovery still from it. Um, it's a different world today because of it. And I think deer hunting is going to be a little bit different, but in what it's going to be, I don't have a, I don't have a crystal ball, but Perfect. there, there's some smart people out there working on it. Perfect. Well, thank you, Steve. I'm going to let you get on with your day. We want to thank you very much. For, and this is my abrupt way of, of ending the podcast, but thank you very much for joining us again. Anybody who wants to find out more information that comes out of his brain, which is a lot, it's the uh, deer lab at Audubon university or do yourself one better. It's like for the cost of two cups of coffee, you can get deer and deer hunting delivered to either digitally or print wise. I still prefer print. I'm, I still have ink in my veins. So uh, Steve, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, appreciate talking to you. Enjoy it. All. I always enjoy it. Thank you. For Dr. Steve Ditchkov at Auburn University, I am Dan Schmidt. Thank you for joining us for Deer Talk Now. Again, wherever podcasts are dropped, you're going to find this. Please like and subscribe if you're listening, if you're watching this on YouTube, Facebook, uh, wherever. We're going to bring you another one next Thursday. So until then, we'll catch you again for another episode of Deer Talk Now. Deer Talk Now is brought to you by 10 Point Crossbow Technologies. Whether I'm in a tree stand, ground blind, or spot and stalk hunting, I know the Nitro 505 is up to any challenge. Check one out at a dealer near you or log on to 10pointcrossbows.com for more information.